of a series, and I'm going to continue that this morning. The series is entitled Love Revolution. This is part four, and I've entitled it A Place to Call Home. For the sake of our uh, live stream audience, we put our call outs and scriptures up here, and so what I'd like to do first is define the word revolution. We talked about some of this last week, and some of it will be review. It means a sudden, radical, or complete change. It also means a fundamental change in the way of thinking about or visualizing something, a change of paradigm. So last week we discussed the topic, what does love have to do with it? Do with it, do with it. What does love have to do with it? It's just a second-hand emotion. We found out that it's not a second-hand emotion, that it's actually a supernatural spiritual reality that God lives in, he created, and that he has brought you and me into, and that it causes faith to explode, to be ignited like a matchstick when you strike it. Love causes faith to come alive and work. So without love, faith doesn't work well. You're familiar with the passage of Scripture, I'm sure, at least with the saying, now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Now remains faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Have you ever asked why? Because the place of rest in the shepherd's embrace fuels faith and hope. So we talked about the meaning of the word love, agape, last week. We're going to review that as well. If God's faith in me, it's God's faith in me that first opened my heart to believe. It's easy for love to believe. See, God first loved you. You didn't first love him. He first loved you. It is his love of you that caused you to have faith in the reality of God, the Christ, heaven, afterlife. It's because of God's love. God's love actually ignited faith in you. God's love for you ignites it makes living, it brings into reality the spiritual dimension that God lives in. Now, to understand the force and the reality of God's love, we've got to understand a little bit of the backstory. Now that Tim is sufficiently embarrassed, I 
I will continue with my message. To really understand the force of love and how powerful and life-changing love is in our life, we need to understand a little bit of the backstory. What am I talking about? Well, let me see if you relate to these couple of items here. A couple of bullet points. I, do, I, do, I don't have a, a slide of them. I'm simply going to read them to you. See if you recognize them. God creates man to commune and have fellowship with him. But man sins. As punishment and because God cannot tolerate or fellowship with sin, he puts man out of the garden. Separation occurs because Adam, or man, is no longer worthy and has fallen. You beginning to recognize something here? Uh, what I'm really talking about is the Western evangelical idea of Christianity. It's what religion teaches. I'm going to call it separation. God enacts a system of laws and animal sacrifice to temporarily address the requirements of his righteousness and his judgment upon sin. If an individual keeps these laws and makes these sacrifices, his sin will be atoned for. However, only a special segment of the population known as priests can come near God's presence because of his holiness. God's isolation from and of man continues. God accepts the shedding of blood as payment for sin. Obedience to the system of some 613 laws is required in exchange for his blessing on your life. However, if you break even one of these laws, you become subject to a curse from God. Any of this sound familiar in our religious upbringing? It should. This is classical evangelicalism here in the West. God's entire relationship with man is legal and transactional. What do I mean by transactional? The exchange of one thing for another. The mutual action required for influence. So transactional will mean or means okay I agree to do this for you if you agree to do that for me. That would be called a transaction. And so the system of religion that gets set up after the fall is legal and transactional. If you do this, then God will do that. Jesus comes in the middle of all of this. He lives a holy, sinless life. He steps in. He takes God's wrath and punishment meant for me and for you. And he takes it upon himself. God puts Jesus to death on a cross again, transactionally and legally in my place. Jesus pays the penalty for sin. God's wrath and God's judgment. And he dies in my place as an appeasement for God's justice. Now, though I did nothing to deserve this in the beginning, 
If I believe he came to rescue me from God's wrath by paying the legal ransom, excuse me, I skipped a sentence. Though I did nothing to deserve this in the beginning, I was born into it, and because of this original man called Adam, he passed his sin and failure onto everybody else, in fact, all of mankind. I stand guilty before a just and holy God. If I believe Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, if I believe he came to rescue me from God's wrath by paying the legal ransom for sin, if I accept him into my heart and I make a commitment to live for him, I'll be saved from God's wrath. God will end his separation from me and accept me back. How are we doing? It sounds like my Sunday school. I mean, these, and then this was all reinforced in my Bible schooling. This is Western evangelical thought and religious idea of Christianity. Oh, one caveat. If I don't maintain a moral lifestyle of holiness and living by a prescribed order of religious commitments, the deal is off. I will again experience God's displeasure, wrath, and ultimately, if I don't correct the backsliding, I could go to hell. You say, Pastor Jeff, this is an interesting way to begin a message on love. I know, but stay with me because I told you that to understand God's love, to understand this spiritual dimension that we were translated into, transformed by, and that we now walk in in our relationship with God, this wonderful relationship of love, you've got to know the backstory. Now, the backstory that I just shared with you, once again, is classical Western evangelicalism. I want you to compare that to this that I'm about to read and I submit to you that this version of the gospel, this version of the story is the historical and that which is believed in the first 1,000 years of church history view. It's called Christus Victor. God creates man as an expression of his exact likeness and image. Man has perfect union with the Trinity, being complete and perfect in his likeness of God. Man believes the lie of an enemy, that he is not enough like God and requires something else to be complete. He immediately feels the effect of departure from likeness and he begins to experience the effect of death. We call it sin. God immediately clothes him in substitutionary grace, isolates him from making the situation worse. How many of you know what I'm talking about there? Right? He put him out of the garden. Why did he put him out of the garden? So that he couldn't eat from the tree of life and perpetuate forever the death that he had entered into. Right Now I'm going to start that sentence over again because how I end it is critical. It is the first step towards Christus Victor. 
because really so far we're talking about the same religious notions here for the most part except for the lie of the enemy and what it was that Adam fell over he did not fall because of disobedience he fell because he believed a lie that he was not enough like God and that by partaking of the tree he would become more like God and gain something that he didn't have God immediately clothes him with substitutionary grace, isolates him from making the situation worse, and leaves the garden with him. I don't mean he leaves the garden in his possession. God leaves the garden with man. He goes with him. He goes on the journey. He never leaves him. He never forsakes him. Contrary to the personal communication and fellowship that God desires and continues desire to have with man, and contrary to the nature of God himself, man demands a system of blood sacrifice, common practice of the day, to enter into a covenant of penal substitution to appease what man perceives as now an angry, wrathful God of judgment. Religion is born. Now, through this system of covenantal laws and sacrifice, God preserves a people of faith who can bring forth a deliverer over and over again. When man turns away from God and breaks fellowship with him, God in turn pursues man, in turn pursues him, goes back, gets in front of man, and continues to deliver him, to welcome him, and provide deliverance. Although religion turns knowing God into a transactional relationship of moral behavior, God demonstrates his grace and favor, that's his kindness and love, that's his true nature, over and over and over again, even in the Old Testament. Jesus comes demonstrating, not only, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Not only demonstrating as an example for us, but as an example of us. He teaches us the true nature of God and for the first time in Jewish history refers to Jehovah as Father. You remember that? The Jewish people would not even dare speak the name Jehovah, Yahweh, much less identify so personally with him and call him father. But Jesus did. He was the first one to. He furthermore commits blasphemy by claiming to be one with the father and in perfect unity with the triune God. Just prior to the cross, Jesus prays a prophetic prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17, declaring that you and I are one with him and the Father. Then Jesus is put on the cross, not by the wrath of God, but by the sin of mankind and the religion of his day. There, there on that cross, Jesus forgives sin. He doesn't punish it. He forgives it. He doesn't pay for it. He forgives it. Let me show you the difference. 
Doug, if I owed you $1,000 and I was out to coffee with Jim and I was troubled over this debt that I couldn't pay and Jim, unbeknownst to me, slips over to your house and brings you $1,000. How many of you know that Jim would be doing a good thing, a kind thing, but that Jim would be paying a debt I owed? Now, if I see Doug a couple of weeks later and I notice that the invoices have stopped coming and I say Doug thank you for forgiving that debt what would Doug's response be I didn't forgive the debt Jim came over and paid for it but you've been taught God was so mad at man that he poured that wrath out on Jesus and that what Jesus did through penal substitution was hang on a cross and pay a debt you couldn't pay. So God was mad. Jesus stepped in the way. This is classical religion 101 but it is not what the early church believed about Jesus and what happened on the cross. In fact, it's not what the church believed for the first thousand years. They believed Christus Victor, which means that Jesus came not to intercept a wrathful God, but because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that when Jesus hung on that cross, God said, I forgive. I forgive. You see, forgiveness is even better than paying a debt. Forgiveness causes me to truly love God. Not because Jesus paid a debt I couldn't pay, but because God did a step better. In fact, a thousand times better we can't even relate the two. Jesus didn't pay the debt. He just said, you know what? God has always loved you, Jeff Corson, so much. He's reached and he's reached and he's reached. And whenever you turned your back on him and went another way, he came around and got back in front of you and said, I love you, my son. And he continued all of your life to rescue and to deliver just like he did in the old covenant. But oftentimes, Jeff, you, you didn't accept that. Your religion needed an animal sacrifice. Your religion needed a wrathful God. And so you, in your human effort, tried to appease me through a system of laws and sacrifice. When the Bible clearly says, sacrifice, I have not required, but mercy. <laughs> God says, you know what? I'm going to make this so totally not about you or anything you can add to it. I forgive you. I forgive you. Christus 
victor. I'll begin again with this last point that I just read. Jesus is put on the cross, not by the wrath of God, but by the sin of mankind and the religion of his day. There, God forgives sin. He doesn't punish it. The cross is an icon of the mercy seat of God, the removal of sin of mankind, and the restoration of man to perfect oneness with the Father. It is the redemption of man's innocence perfectly the way it all began. Separation from God, which only existed because of man's religion and the law code, that is transactional, a legal system of appeasing God, is completely removed now. God is successful. Jesus is successful. And his death as the Lamb of God reconciles all of humankind to his original place of innocence. Man is now restored to perfect fellowship with God. The success of the cross is proven by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Death is completely defeated. Man is no longer subject to religion, law code, or the enemy. This is done whether I believe it or not. It is finished whether I accept it or not. God did it, and God did it for all of humankind, whether I believe it or not. My believing it doesn't make it true. It's true regardless. And now I can experience on this earth the full effect of God's reconciliation and wonderful, incredible love that satiates this world and all humankind. I personally can experience it if I simply believe God did this for me. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to raise both hands and say, I'm all in. Because not an ounce of Christus Victor was about me, my moral behavior, my sacrifices, my obedience, my being worthy. It was all about Jesus. And now, dear ones, I have a place I can call home. The love of God. God's love is your home. We talked about love in some detail. And it's interesting because I want to contrast just for a moment. You, you heard me do it in my, my description of religion versus the love of God. Here's a scripture, though, that's always been difficult to reconcile with Christus Victor. Let's look at it. Romans 5, 9, much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. How many of you have ever read that scripture or heard it preached on or you're at least familiar with the concept of it? You will never be served well in your study of the Bible and your understanding of God 
to read from one translation of the Bible alone. Now, I have had, just in recent months, individuals tell me, I'm King James. I believe King James is the word of God. <laughs> well, you are entitled to that view. But it is that view that will lend itself to the fact, or to the idea, the view, that it is God's wrath that put Jesus on the cross, and it's God's wrath you are being spared of by what Jesus did for you. So it's really not about love and forgiveness. It's about legal, a legal substitution. It's about a transaction because God is righteous and he's holy and he demands change and he demands righteousness and only Jesus as a perfect sinless man could accomplish that so he stepped in the way and paid the ransom and got you out of wrath if you read that same verse though from the message translation you'll see this there is no longer a question of being at odds odds with God in any way here's the Young's literal translation we shall be saved through him from the wrath here's uh, the Aramaic now you understand that I'm getting in the way here because I don't want you to get ahead of me <laughs> so Jeff back it up you understand that back then the language that Jesus spoke in was Aramaic. You thought it was Greek, didn't you? He spoke in Aramaic. And then the, quote, writings were translated into Greek. Some of them were written in Greek. But the language of the day was Aramaic. It serves you well, as in all Bible study, to read from an Aramaic translation when you're dealing with difficult passages. This is the Aramaic of verse 9. Therefore, how many will now be made right by his blood and even more will be redeemed by him from the anger? Now, where did we just learn in terms of the two views contrasted? Where was the anger? Where was the anger coming from? Religion. It wasn't God that was angry. Man made that notion up in his own mind that he was wrathful and he was angry and he was going to judge and he was going to condemn. And so we've got to have all these sacrifices. God proved over and over and over and over and over again that that wasn't his wrath. All right, well, let's keep going. Even the New American Standard Bible, which is by all accounts, by all theologians and Bible students, the translation that most, without exception, believed to be the most literal 
word-for-word translation of the Bible. Look what it says. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, and of God is italicized. If you have a New American Standard, you can see it in the text right there. What, what do you know about a Bible translation as you're reading along when anything in it is italicized? It isn't there in the original language. It was added by the translator. Even the New American Standard actually reads this way. We shall be saved from the wrath through him, through Jesus. That's important. It's important distinction. God's not the author of the wrath. Religion and sin and death is the author of the wrath. Now, let's deal with this word love, agape. Agape is actually a compound word. It comes from two words. First, agu, which means to lead like a shepherd guides his sheep. And then secondly, it comes from peo, agu peo, or, and that, by the way, means to rest. So thus, he leads me beside still waters, or he, like the psalmist says, leads me to a place of rest and refreshment. Agape is not a feeling, and it's far more than just a commitment God makes to you, or that you make to a significant other in marriage where you love somebody, and you say, I'm going to love them with God's kind of love, agape. So it's not just a feeling or a brotherhood. It's a commitment. Actually, agape doesn't just mean that. It means he leads me beside still waters. In other words, agape is that supernatural place of resting in what God has provided through Jesus Christ. The very strongest expression of God's love is Jesus. The very focus of God's love is Jesus. The highest expression of God embracing you, loving you, forgiving you is Jesus. Jesus loves us perfectly. Francois Dutrois, author of the Mirror Bible, says this, God's rest is established upon his image and likeness redeemed in us. In other words, Christus Victor. Thus to encounter agape is to remember who I am. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You may have been a sinner and thank God for his grace, but don't you dare think or speak of yourself as just an unworthy sinner that somehow God stepped in the way or Jesus stepped in the way of God's wrath and spared you, but really you're just an unworthy worm you actually have been redeemed and reconciled to your original innocence through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You have been born again. 
Think of it. Jesus is your elder brother. You are as righteous as Jesus. Some people, when I say that, you can just see their brains go. (laughs) Do you see that? How dare you say I'm as righteous as Jesus? But that's what Paul said. You have become the righteousness of God in Christ. He is made unto me righteousness, wisdom, sanctification. We mirror or emulate what we uncover or see or perceive in fellowship with the Father. I can always tell when somebody has been alone with the Father. I had the pleasure of meeting for the first time this past Sunday, uh, Bob Hall. And uh, I had met you, Jerry. I know you had been to the church a time or two before, uh, but Bob was here last week. And then, so we made a date and and, uh, had, I don't know, 90 minutes together sharing. I could tell that Bob spends time in the presence of God because all I felt from Bob for 90 minutes was this love, this acceptance, this, Jeff, you're okay. I like you. You don't need to impress me. (laughs) I'm your brother in the Lord. I love that when I feel that in somebody's prayer. It's very loving. He was easy to be with, easy to get along with. I just, I I appreciated that. I didn't even mean to say that, Bob. It's not in my notes, and I hope I didn't put you on the spot too badly here. But see, here's my point. We mirror what we uncover in fellowship with the Father. When you've been in the Father's presence, your life kind of shows that off. You can tell when you've been in the presence of somebody who understands the relationship with God based on the view of Christus Victor rather than penal substitution. It's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of acceptance. I didn't feel like I needed to impress or perform or Jesus loves me and believes in me. God believes that we are fully represented in Christ, which takes circumcision or any contribution of the flesh out of the equation. Love sets faith in motion. Love fuels faith. It's easy for love to believe. And here's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Many of you Bible students, you learned this as one of your first memory verses. But here it is from the mirror translation. The terms co-crucified and co-alive define me now, Christ in me and I in him. His sacrificial love is evidence of his persuasion of my righteousness. And he says in quotes, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He endorses my innocence. 
To live by the faith of the Son of God means to live in the consciousness of the same sonship that Jesus enjoys. Oh my goodness. And I love this, that I live or love out of likeness, not out of moral effort. Don't you? I am empowered to love by resting in my likeness with God, not trying to love you. I think on the surface you will find that I am sometimes hard to love. I know you don't believe it. I, I, I know that's hard to... But Jim, you've known me enough decades now. I mean, I married you and your wife, right? We go back a couple decades. I haven't always been easy to love. But you know what? I am empowered to love by simply resting in my likeness to God. I become like him because I mirror him as I uncover and spend time with him. I find out about my likeness, the likeness that I was created in the beginning to be. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the... Really? Now, you knew I was going to end this sermon with a challenge, didn't you? <laughs> I, I've been doing that lately. Well, tell me this. So, since the 66 books, does anybody like have a Bible? I know it's, it's kind of rare today. People don't. We have our iPods and our iPads and our... And I'm guilty. I mean, I, I don't have a paper Bible this morning. But you know, don't you, that this collection of books wasn't even decided on in terms of content until about 400 A.D. Then because the only translation of it was in Latin and copies of it were scarce, only made by scribes, common people never had copies of it. In fact, commoners, you and me, never had a chance to even read this until Gutenberg came up with the Gutenberg Press in the 1500s and started printing the first Bibles. May I ask you? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You mean the Bible that nobody had for 1,500 years after Jesus died and rose again? I mean the Bible that commoners couldn't read and only priests had in the temple and that Bible? What am I getting at? 
There better be something more to your faith in the love and the forgiveness of God than just, oh, I'm getting myself in so much trouble, than just the Bible. Did you know that Christianity, your faith, does not rest, is not validated by the Bible? The foundation of your faith is an event. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died. And nothing can change that. The fact that it was written about and collected in 66 books 400 years later and then printed in mass 1,500 years later does not change the event. Dear ones, do you understand? I love my Bible. It is precious. I believe it is the Word of God. I pour over its pages. It reveals to me how God thinks. I love my Bible. But God loves me before this was ever a thought in the mind of man. And you better know God loves you. And you better love others. Not because the Bible tells you to. But because you know the creator of the world. You have personal identity with him. And his presence. Because you are redeemed and reconciled to him through what he did in Jesus Christ when Jesus hung on that cross and died and said, I forgive them. 